0: Today, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. And so, if you would go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word, it's also going to be on the screen if you don't have that or on your device. Um, And so, as you get there, I'd love to just welcome those that are guests today that are joining us for the first time or maybe. One of the first times, if you haven't already, you can fill out a a guest card in the uh, seat back in front of you. You can drop it in the give boxes on your way out on either side of the door and we'll contact you in a respectful way. We're really glad that you're here. We've prayed over this time that we'd be able to receive the gospel and respond to it appropriately. And so if you would continue that prayer as we read starting in verse 8 from Galatians chapter 4. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain." Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is Galatians 4, 8 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that today it would have its full effect in our lives. That it would find good soil in our hearts. That we might bear great fruit. That you might be formed in us as your people. And I pray this all for the sake of your great name and glory, Jesus. Amen. As I begin this morning, I have a really uh, a confession to make to all of you. Yep, I am a terrible, terrible patient. My wife can testify of this. I am not good at being sick. I'm and I've never met a man who is better than his wife at being sick. Am I right? Never in my life. I want to be tended to, but not too closely. I want to be cared for, but not so much. I want to be grumpy, but I don't want you to be offended by my grumpiness anytime that I'm sick. And many of you can relate or commiserate with my wife and thank God for the people who are in the health profession, right? Thank God for them, especially over the last year, many of them hanging by a thread. And I read an article this week that that one in five healthcare workers have quit since the pandemic. And I guarantee you that there would be more if there were more patients like myself. People who make it their aim to tend to our physical and psychological well-being, may their tribe increase and may God be with them during this season. And As we thank God for those people, this passage today would have us consider another group of people who've taken up for themselves the concern of our spiritual welfare to toil and labor for our benefit. Many of us know full well that we've endured some type of sickness physically and there's someone who's tended to us, addressing our needs, our sleep patterns, our diet, all that we're doing so that we might pursue physical health. And in this passage, Paul is describing what it looks like to be concerned with someone's spiritual health. Just to catch you up and recap, this is week 10 in this series in Galatians, and so he's been explaining to them how they're dead wrong, how they've been fools, and he's been very corrective of them. I mean, lashing out at them, saying, look, I cannot believe you would get so misled and distracted from the gospel and end up in this place that is completely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we get this little moment where we see this not just theological treatise of what Paul is saying they've gotten wrong, but he's saying, I want you to remember how Christ is being formed in you specifically, and he describes his labor among them. We get this little portrait of what it looked like for him to bring the gospel to them and for them to receive it and what it means for him to be a shepherd to them. Now, he was an apostle, which is different from those of us in the room that would have kind of spiritual responsibility or concern, but there's many things about what he modeled in this passage that we would be uh, uh, wise to model in our lives as we seek to shepherd others. And so I want to answer this question today. What does it mean for us to be cared for spiritually? How is it that others are participating in this reality of Christ being formed in the life of believers? And so this is where we're going overarching. It's going to be on the screen. Spiritual leadership in the church. Is marked by this collaborative aim of the image of Christ being formed in us. That's what it is. It's us cooperating and collaborating together, saying, We want to see the image of Christ. Being realized in the life of everyone who has received him, who believes on him. And so the bottom line, Paul is reminding them of a few different stories. He's going to remind them first of how they came to faith, their story of salvation. Then he's going to remind them of the story of how he ended up in their town, how he was sick and he ended up there. And then he's going to remind them of who they're becoming in Christ, this reality that their story isn't over, that Christ is still being formed in them, that he's not given up on them. And because of that, he cares for them. So there's where we're going, story of their salvation, of his ministry among them, and who they're becoming. I want to start first with this observation of this first reminder. He wants to remind them of who they have already become in their salvation. In chapter uh, 4, verse 8, it says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Formerly, that means that there is a definitive past where he's looking back on it saying, you used to be like this, and now you are like this. You did not know God. There was a definite before and after. That means that at some point, they were introduced to the reality of God, and it wasn't just that they knew who who he was, they were known by him. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But they were, he describes their former life. They were enslaved by idols that are really not gods. They're little g-gods. These are just these imaginary things made of stone and wood and metal. Formerly, that's how it was. But now I want to remind you that that's not your life anymore. There is a God who was rich in mercy, who saw you, opposed to him, enemies with him who made you from children of wrath to being adopted as his children, like we talked about last week. And then in verse nine, it says this about their salvation. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, he describes these two parts of their relationship with God. First, they came to know him. They've come to reality where you weren't aware of God, and now you are. Now for everyone who believes in this room, there had to be some point in your consciousness where you said, God exists. Some of you are in that place today. You Maybe are agnostic about his dealing with the world or how uh, involved he is or removed he is. You're indifferent about those things, but you know that God exists. And for these people, they had come to the reality that God exists, but that wasn't all that Paul said about their salvation. He said it wasn't just that they knew God, but they were known by him. This week, I got called out on a name drop. You know what I'm talking about? When you're like, yeah, I know that guy. And they're like, well, can you ask him to do this? And I'm like, well, actually, I don't know him that well. (laughs) I mean, we're Facebook friends, right? There's two parts to this reality of knowing who God is. First, you've come to know who he is. And it doesn't mean that he's not acquainted with you and he didn't knit you together before you were even born, but there's something that happens in the life of every believer where you realize that you're in the scope of God's view. He can see you. He knows you very intimately. Maybe you come into this room today believing that God's real, but you don't know him personally. And part of knowing him personally isn't just believing that he exists, but believing that he knows who you are. That he knows exactly who you are. He knows every mistake you've ever made. 1 Corinthians 8 says it kind of like this. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. These two realities are present in the life of everyone who believes. Look, God is not impressed with your knowledge of him. That's the first thing I want you to know. If you come into this room with lots of theology in your mind and in your brain, God is not impressed with how much you know about him because he's infinitely larger and infinitely better and infinitely more than you've ever come to discover about him. But here's what he loves is for you to be acquainted with the reality that he knows who you are. He sees you as you are. He sees you in this moment, known by God, the reality that that there's this coming into the presence of God where He's familiar, intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He saw you before you lived a day. He saw every one of your days, and He knows everything about you. So that we would say with the psalmist, what is man that you're mindful of us? And that is this wonderful truth. These people have left behind idols that really weren't God's. They come to know God and then ultimately they're known by God. And this relationship is the beginning of pastoral work. This is what Paul's doing. I want you to be reminded that formerly you were like this. Now you've come to know God and rather to be known by God, this relational, eternal, strong and worthy God in comparison to the weak and worthless principles of the world. He's saying, I want you to, I want you to just remember you left weak and worthless things behind, right? And you perceived that you maybe know God, but rather he knows you. And in so many ways, we've traded, as C.S. Lewis says, the holiday at the sea for the mud pies in the slums. And that's what he's saying to them. You've traded this reality that you know God and are known by him for these worthless principles that you should have left behind. In verse 10, it says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And Paul describes these things in Colossians, Okay. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, he says it like this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. And then he says this, this is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, you're trading the substance, the reality of God himself present with you for this shadow of the things that were pointing to Jesus, festivals, years, months, and, and, and maybe none of you are like celebrating the Jewish holiday in some way that would replace it with, with Jesus. But there's lots of things that we do that are no more than empty practices. Especially in the South, they allure us the emptiness of them comes and pleads with us and draws us away from the reality of knowing and being known by God. Preoccupied, we are sometimes with the shadow rather than the reality of Christ Himself. Like a kid more interested in the gift box at Christmas than the gift. And the gift is this reality that God has come to live in you and through you to make himself known to you and to help you live in this astonishing gift that he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything about you. And here's the even better news: He loves you anyway. There's nothing hidden from him. And he still cares for you. There's nothing that others, listen, this week I had a pocket dial accidentally happen. Anybody ever have this happen? But how many of you have had a pocket dial happen in the middle of a family conflict? I mean, it's just, there it is. Hey, welcome to our world. You're replaying every word. Listen, there's no pocket dial that could surprise God. There's nothing about you that remains hidden. He knows who you are. And part of our coming to salvation is coming to terms with this reality. There is absolutely nothing hidden from his sight. And that's good news because he was never shocked by anything that happened on the pocket dial, right? Nothing. A few applications before I move on. We need people who know our story, specific story of redemption well enough that when we forget, they can remind us of everything we left behind that was weak and worthless so that they can point us specifically to the worthy and eternal things of God himself. And that leads to this first fear that Paul has in verse 11. He says, I'm afraid that maybe I've labored over you in vain. I'm afraid that I've come, to, I, I've come to an extreme loss. I went there, i told you about Jesus, and now you're wandering away from it. And he's very confrontational. You can tell that his tone was intended to be corrective and confrontational because later he's like, I wish I could take a, a slighter tone with you, but you leave me perplexed. And then he brings them to the second reminder. He tells them the story once again of his ministry to them. He starts from the beginning. I want you guys to remember how I came to you. Verse 12, look at it in your Bibles. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And through my condition, though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn me and despise me. But you treated me as an angel of Christ. Christ Jesus. He's entreating them to remember, remember how I came to you. I became like you are. Perhaps he means that he feels no need to participate anymore in the Jewish customs that he grew up in. Paul was complete. He was an expert at being a Jew. And now these people that aren't experts are taking up the baton of being Jews. And he's like, I'm like you now. Why are you trying to be like me? Be like me. I'm now like you. How they received him, he starts to ask them, how could you leave behind this blessedness? He asks him a couple questions in this passage. The first one is, what has become of this blessedness? What happened to the way that you received me? So how did he come to them? First, he came to them with great vulnerability. The reason that he shows up in this place isn't because he's strutting his stuff and saying, I'm here to bring you this great news. He comes there because he's bodily ill. Who knows what's going on with him, but maybe a doctor has prescribed you need to go up to the mountains in Galatia and kind of clear your head or something. And he goes up there and because he's ill and it's he's ill enough that as the people would have looked at him, it would have been a natural response to scorn him and despise him. They would have looked at him and said, like, this guy's gross. This is kind of nasty. And Paul brings all of that invulnerability before them and it's because of his bodily ailment that he brings the gospel to them at first. And in that moment when he's bringing in his vulnerability, he's able to present them with the most amazing news of all. They received him. He came to them in vulnerability and they received him. They did him no wrong. They didn't scorn him, didn't despise him. It's an understandable opportunity to look at Paul and say, you are not fit for this great ministry. And it's interesting to me, just a side note observation, that the needs of Paul, his weakness is what opens the door for him to present the gospel to this group of people. It wasn't in his victorious apostolic vocation or his eloquence or speaking skills. It's his sickness that opens up the door for them to hear about Jesus. So he's asking them this question, what happened to your blessedness? And then... He begins to lay side by side his ministry to them and the way that they were being influenced by these outside groups, the Judaizers. He has authority with them. And I just want to reiterate before I move on to the contrast between him and the people that were misleading him, pastors do not have this kind of apostolic authority where they should be embraced like Jesus, okay? That's not the profession of career ministry. That's not what it should look like. In as much as any person stands on God's word, God's word has authority here to be embraced as the words of Christ. Everybody else, you can take it or leave it, but if you speak these words, they're authoritative. And when Paul brought God's words to them, they said, we recognize that this has authority. So he comes with vulnerability, he comes with authority, he comes with this spiritual concern for them that's very pastoral, ultimately that Christ would be formed in him, and his tone was parental, and I'm not talking like parental on those infant days, it's parental like get in the van, come on, it's time, it's a tone of correction, and he says, I wish that I could change it. Maybe I could if I were present with you, but I'm not. I'm currently perplexed and I'm in anguish. And the way that he describes his anguish over Christ being formed is that of childbirth. Never experienced it. I've seen it a few times. And from what I know, I don't want to do it. And what he's saying is I experienced anguish over Christ being developed and formed and present in you. He's perplexed. So he's asking, what happened to all of the ways that you received it? And then he gives them this second question in verse 16 Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, how many enemies have we made by telling the truth? How many people have we moved into the enemy category by hearing the truth? Many enemies. But let me tell you something. This is what love manifest looks like. It looks like truth telling. Even when the truth is an uncomfortable truth. It isn't flattery. And then he lays himself beside these other people that are flattering them. He puts himself in contrast to the false teachers. They're here telling you guys are doing great. We'll get you celebrating these Jewish holidays. Y'all are so good at this. Look at you guys. You just pulled off your first Jewish holiday. And they are just applauding them and giving them praise. And the people are feeling pretty good about themselves, you know. And then Paul says something really interesting. He says, look, they make much of you. They're praising you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. This is the contrast of true spiritual concern. There's a lot of people who wear a cloak of spiritual concern, but what they're really after is you making much of them. In contrast to the false teachers who would use flattery not to build you up, but to build themselves up. It's self-seeking. And then he says, look, it's it's okay to make much of people. That's not what's wrong. In fact, it's kind of nice. It's okay to do that from time to time. In fact... In Romans, he said we should outdo one another in showing honor. We should show brotherly affection. So there should be this competitive nature where we're just saying, you know what? God is awesome in your life. I see him. But the end result isn't self-seeking, but it's Christ being formed in the person in front of you. That's why we would make much of anyone so that they could make much of Jesus Christ, not so they could return the favor. And it's always good to be made much of. Honor, encouragement. Listen, there is no one who has enough encouragement. Not a single person. There's no one in this room who's like, no, I'm good. You should bring it. Just don't bring it for yourself. Bring it for their benefit and for God's glory. And so as we think about this example of Paul, that he came in sickness, that Christ would be named among them with authority and embraced with sincerity. It's so important for us as God's people that because there's so much importance that's placed, so much emphasis that's placed on the product of what we receive on Sundays. You know what I'm talking about? Listen, there's people talk about like, oh, you're a pastor. There's like a church on every single corner, right? And part of the ability to go to all of these different places that we can kind of shop around, see what suits us, you know, we become consumers of the product instead of people who are interested in the message of Jesus Christ. And so there's churches all around. They've got lots of opinions about how it should be done. And we kind of look and say, well, I like how this person talks. I like how that pastor looks. And I like how this works together. And the people that go there kind of look like me and dress like me and seem like they're in the same stage of life as me. And there's so many ways that we could shop around for the ministry that suits us. And Paul is describing these two places where he's saying, look, you should not be interested in what makes much of you. You should be interested in what makes much of Christ. Paul comes with this great opportunity to be scorned, despised, and in the middle of people look at him. Maybe he's not tall. Maybe he's not handsome. Maybe he's got pus running out of his eyes. I don't know. They look at him and they embrace his message. And ever so often, we're tempted. We're vulnerable to a different kind of thing. To look at some outward demonstration of poise and posture and affluence, and receive it as if that's Jesus, forgetting that he came in a manger, and he walked among us, and he picked up a cross. And that's what the people do that follow him. We need that kind of vulnerable leadership that doesn't lead in with a strut, but comes in with a limp and says, look, I'm in some desperate need here. Let me tell you about Jesus. He's addressing something for us in the culture of pastors and spiritual leaders that John Stott, he summarizes it much better than me, so I'll just read what he says on the screen. What should, be, what should matter to the people is not the pastor's appearance, but whether Christ is speaking through him. And what should matter to the pastor is not the people's favor, but whether Christ is formed in them. The church needs people who in listening to their pastor, listen for the message of Christ and pastors who in laboring among the people look for the image of Christ only when pastor and people thus keep their eyes on Christ will their mutual relations keep healthy, profitable, and pleasing to almighty God. That's the only way. We have to keep our eyes on this mutual and collaborative goal that Christ himself would be formed. And as long as the aim is knowing Christ, being known by by God and Christ being formed in us, then we won't be distracted by uh, who looks like us and ideological camps and political camps and what it means ultimately to belong to the church. It isn't to belong to a group of people who suit you. It means to belong to Christ and to pursue something together, Christ himself being formed in us. And so the primary aim of Paul was this, that Christ would be formed in them. And we need people who will labor over one another until this happens in the same way that Paul was in anguish saying, I'm like in childbirth here, hoping, praying, longing for Christ to be developed in your life so that his presence can be seen and experienced by anyone who comes in proximity to you. We need those kind of people who will labor over that aim. So this leads us to the last reminder: the story of Christ being formed. That was the primary aim for Paul, that Christ would be formed in the Him. He shared this mutual longing, longing in the receiving for those that would receive it. Now, one of the things that came up in our small group this week as we were discussing this passage, and I mean, he is insulting these people. You know, you guys are fools. You've got to wonder, like, the people reading the letter for the first time, they're like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, like, how did they receive this, you know? Did some of them split off and say, I'd rather not go to that church? <laughs> but apparently some of them passed the letter around and said, I guess we were. I guess we were fools. The only way we can receive this kind of correction is if we're reminded of this truth. The story that ultimately is our story is the story of Christ being formed in us. It's not self-realization. And that requires some theological clarity, okay? Almost all of the first part of Galatians that we've been through is like, this is the gospel. This is what it means to believe it. This is how you become adopted. And now he's saying, look, what I'm after is for this truth of who God is to be fully formed in your life. And this goes in complete opposition to what the world is trying to sell is the story. The story, the spirit of the age that we live in is that everyone is on a path to self-realization. You just gotta become the best version of you when Christ is saying, I want to be the best version of myself through you. It's separate, it's different. This idea that we would live for the singular purpose that Christ himself would be formed in us. That's the invitation of Jesus is pick up a cross. Die to yourself and let me be realized in your life. The way that Carl Truman describes the spirit of our age is like this. The intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her own existence." Few other things. Okay, this is just a brilliant book, um, but I want to make a few observations from this quote. He's pointing out that our culture, the spirit of our age right now, pushes the highest value on our individual right to define what existence is. Never before has it been this important for a culture to say, "Individuals, this is it," or for our culture, it prioritizes victimhood. It only understands individuals in psychological terms. So rather than understanding who we are according to God's word, we're trying to define ourselves according to whatever psychological gobbledygook that we can consume on the internet and whatever quizzes that we can take. And it regards all traditional sexual codes as oppressive. This is the the spirit of our age. And the result is the most anxious, victimized, outraged culture that's ever existed, I would say. And so Jesus comes along in the midst of that and invites you to this alternative. This is the invitation. Rather than thinking only in terms of being a victim, we see the only innocent victim who's ever lived Jesus Christ Himself on the cross for our sins. He's the only one who was blameless, who's ever taken the blame. Hanging on a cross in our place for our sins, rather than having to define our own existence. He offers us his existence, his life in us. Rather than trying with no avail to define our success with our work and our family and our homes and whatever it is, Christ is offering us his ultimate success and victory in his perfect life and death and resurrection. And where this invitation of Christ comes to us is this place where you can surrender all of these things, pick up the cross and find life, resurrection life. And rather than trying to create our own story, God is inviting us into his story that he would be formed in everyone who believes. And maybe you feel weak and helpless in this process, powerless or incomplete, and you're saying, I don't know how Jesus is being formed in me. I feel a lot of things being formed. A lot of them don't resemble Jesus. You ever been there? You have a lot of responses to the world and some of them might resemble Jesus. And a lot of them do not. And here's good news for those of you who are weary and tired and thinking, Lord, I wish, I wish you would be formed in you, in me. Romans eight eleven puts this as our hope. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And so this is the real hope of every believer that Christ has chosen to abide in and take up the likes of you and to give His Spirit to you. And in all the places that you feel dead to any attempt to looking like Jesus, He's giving you Himself, His presence and power by His Spirit. And making us into a people who resemble our maker. He's shaping us into a people who resemble the one who shaped us into existence from the beginning. And there's more power than you could ever muster in Christ Jesus and his spirit in you. And so when that work is through, one day and the day of completion, when we see him face to face and we'll look like him because we will see him, he will get every bit of the credit and all the glory. And so here's the question I want to leave us with today. This question, is Christ being formed in you? This begins in these same reminders, being reminded of the gospel narrative that Jesus Christ comes to us And we hear these words that we can abandon the weak and worthless principles that have never served us. We only serve them. And he invites us to come and drink from living water. And for all of us who've laid down our idols, we might need to remind ourselves to lay them down again for something that's ultimately more powerful, ultimately more worthy. Some of us need to be certain with theological clarity of what's going on here. Paul is writing out to these people saying, look, you've gotten it wrong. You've gotten off the tracks here with what the gospel is. We need to pursue those things so that we can know how Christ is being formed in us. Paul's primary correction with this people in this particular passage is the influence that these outsiders had with them because, (laughs) because they were so flattering. They were interested in themselves, not their own good. And so I want to ask you this too. I started off talking about being a terrible patient. I'm a really bad patient. My wife said, amen. What kind of patient are you when others are pursuing this aim in your life, when they bring the words of correction? What kind of patient are you? Can you hear it when people say you're acting like a fool? Do you prefer flattery do you make people an enemy when they tell you the truth? That's what Paul said. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? Surround yourself with people who are after the same longing and purpose to see Christ fully developed in your life maturity we need those kinds of relationships where we can correct our sins and confess our sins and where we can be comforted by the gospel and reassured again that Christ knows all and that he continues to love us are you connected because if you're disconnected today if you're watching online and it's been an age since you've been with the people of God I'm inviting you and pleading with you to be back because God wants you to be formed into his image and part of the way that he accomplishes that is by bringing you around other people who are in the same, uh, they're on the same team. Look, being a Christian is not a solo sport. It's best pursued with teammates and peers and coaches and spiritual leadership that will concern themselves with your progress. So you need to receive those kinds of friends. That's the first half of it, but you also need to be those kinds of friends who concern yourselves with the reality of Christ being formed in someone else other than yourself. Be those kinds of friends. Take responsibility for others. Husbands, take responsibility for your wives and for your children. Every person who has a peer experience the spiritual concern of Christ being formed in those other people. So relationships like that begin with vulnerability. They begin with you being able to receive as much as you're hoping you can give. The most impactful relationships I've ever had in my life were those that asked me for forgiveness and who could confess their sins. He longs to be formed in you with beauty, dignity, and all the glory going to him. And so I want to leave with this quote because someone else again said it better than I could. John Piper describes it this way It is really quite simple. The Son of God comes and shapes us from within. If we rely on him to come and shape us. The son takes shape in those who abandon themselves to him. Christ forms himself in the lives of those who will let go of all the forms of life in which they have shaped on their own. Christ takes shape in a life that is willing to become putty in God's hands. Christ presses the shape of his own face into the clay of our soul when we cease to be hard and resistant. And when we take our own amateur hands off and admit that we're not such good artists as he is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would form us and shape us into your image for your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.